you. Appreciate it. And uh, if you're wondering where Brother Dale is tonight, he and Susan are in San Diego. And uh, I'll, I'll give you permission to hate them just for a few minutes, okay? It'll, it'll be okay. And so, uh, man, they're going to enjoy some weather that we're not going to enjoy tomorrow. But, uh, oh well. Hey, fall's coming and it's almost football season, right? So uh, we'll make it. We'll make it somehow. I want you to turn tonight to uh, another Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Love this Psalm. And uh, I want us to look at it. We're going to take about uh, six or seven weeks to look at this one. I've already got it uh, divided up. I'll tell you about that in just a little bit. But uh, as I was thinking about it, I preached on this before. But uh, I'm taking a little bit different slant. Uh, it's written by Solomon. And it's one of those psalms that's called a psalm of ascent. And the reason they call it that is because uh, the Jews always talked about going to Jerusalem to the temple as going up and ascending up to it. And this is one of the psalms they would sing. It was written by Solomon. Did you know Solomon wrote any of the psalms? He wrote two. And I can't uh, remember the other one right offhand, but you can look it up. Sometime Google it when we get through with the sermon. When we get through with the sermon. Okay? So uh, that's, that's the one thing now. You never know what people are doing. Are they really reading their Bible or looking at Facebook or Googling the statistic? I just I don't give statistics very much anymore because everybody can check them out. I love the good old days when you could say 9 out of 10 dentists preferred this and nobody knew whether they did or not. Now you can Google it. And uh, you can catch me, so I uh, don't want to do that. But they would sing this while they were on their way to the temple. And that was a family time. And so when you think about what it says in there, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. Now, as we think about that, that kind of makes us think of family and uh, community and all of that. And they would sing that while they were on their way to Jerusalem. So uh, that gives you a little bit of the setting and what they would do. It put into their minds that there's more to life than just going through rituals and just living day by day by day. This is a psalm that's going to tell us that children are a blessing. They're a heritage from the Lord. We don't always treat them like that. We don't always think of them like that. Too often, uh, you know, children are just kind of in the way or uh, something like that. It, it's just kind of sad. So he's giving us in this psalm the building blocks of a nation, of a city, of a family, of a society, of a culture. But he also, notice the warning. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Okay? He talks about the watchman watching the city. If he doesn't do it right, it's no good. And so this is all for the glory of God. And I want to take it from the warning standpoint that uh, Solomon gives us. And uh, I, I think you'll see it as we uh, go through this. Um, it says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build. Let's read the whole psalm. Who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, 
is a reward. I referenced that Sunday night and almost said fruit of the loom, remember? Uh, verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Now, we'll explain more of that. We're just going to look at the first part of this tonight. But just for an overview, just to maybe whet your appetite a little bit, we'll cover one of these a week. Tonight, we're going to uh, say this. The attempt to succeed as a secular society is a sign that we're going downhill. Okay? How do we see our cultures in decline? Because we think we can do it without God. We've outgrown God. We've outgrown the Bible. We've outgrown all of those kind of things. And we can just be a secular society and we will be fine. That is a sign that we are in decline. As we see other nations do that too. Number two... Next week, we're going to talk about an inordinate trust in military and might. And that can be economic might, too. People say, oh, the dollar will never fail. Oh, the country will never fall. America's too big, and our military is too strong. Well, some other nations and empires have thought that before as well. So we need to talk about that. And uh, hopefully, this will turn into something that we can pray about as well. Number three, we're going to be talking about uh, a nation in decline finds identity and security in work or wealth. How many people do you know that they feel good about themselves if they can work and by what they do in their work or how much money they have and uh, what that IRA looks like and what their investments look like and what their real estate looks like? I'm secure because I've got plenty of money. That is another thing that is a fallacy we see in there. And then the fourth thing we're going to talk about is seeing children as a burden. And so many people think that it's my kids that keep me from having my career. It's my kids that cost too much money or I'd have more stuff and better things and take better trips and all of that. And uh, boy, the poor kids. So many times we find that parents don't really want to be all that involved in their life. They're just a burden. And I remember... Uh, President Obama, when he was defending abortion, he said one time, if my daughter, one of my daughters makes a mistake and gets pregnant, I don't want her punished with a child or with a baby. That's just sad. And it tells us a lot about who we are and what we think. Number five, we're going to talk about how dangerous it is to leave parenting to the quote-unquote experts. We always think that everybody knows more about parenting than we do, but they're our children. God gave them to us. He's promised to guide us. He's put us in families. We know what the other generations have to say, and we ought to listen to all of that instead of listening to a bunch of people who don't know their head from a hole in the ground many times. And uh, when I took courses in counseling, I was absolutely amazed and astounded at how much of that was not based on anything scientific, but it was based upon the experience of certain counselors who made up names and made up syndromes and made up psychoses and things like that. Uh, you would be surprised. So we don't want to leave parenting to the experts. It's not up to them. Even church experts, by the way, it's not up to them to parent your child. And then number six, we're going to talk about believing the myth. And uh, we have the idea today that the more children you have, the worse your life is going to be. And the Bible never puts any kind of a, 
Uh, it never teaches anything like that, okay? And then number seven, um, we're going to talk about how fear and failure and shame cause the godly to be quiet. And I feel that a lot in the culture in which we live. I uh, want to preach as a preacher, and I want to preach about marriage or divorce. And uh, you can feel it, and sometimes people say it. Have you ever been divorced? No, well, then you have no right to say anything, so shut up. Okay? Well, wait a minute. Yeah, I do. That's my job. That's what we're supposed to do. But that's the way we feel, I think, all in society. I've never been a different race, so I can't speak to racism. And I've never been uh, in the inner city on welfare, so I can't speak to finances or poverty or drug abuse or alcohol abuse. And it's all just basically sit down, shut up, sit down, shut up, sit down, shut up. You have no right to speak until you've been there. And of course, what's really funny is with some of the people I've talked to who have said that or insinuated it, most people aren't that rude, but they kind of insinuate, well, you've never been there, so you don't really know about it. So in other words... Just be quiet, leave us alone, and don't ever try to advise or teach the Word of God. And uh, when that happens, what happens to our society? We get quiet, we clam up, we get fearful, we're afraid to say anything. We have a lot to offer. You have a lot to offer in this society. You, Jesus said, are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its savor, then it is, he said, good for nothing that's hard to take, isn't it? Good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And I'm afraid today that a lot of Christians, because we have fear in our hearts about saying things that need to be said, and sometimes the most loving thing you can do is give somebody the bad news. Can you imagine if you were having trouble and you didn't know why you were so weak, why you were so tired, and why you felt so terrible, and you went to the doctor and he said, oh, you'll be okay, take a couple of aspirin and just, just chill out, only to find out you were dying of cancer, and there was a treatment you could have, but the doctor didn't want to hurt your feelings, and the doctor didn't want to depress you that day, and the doctor didn't want to put you through anything. Boy, that doctor would be looking for a big-time lawsuit because it's his job not only to tell you everything looks good, but he also is supposed to tell you when, hey, I see a problem, and it's going to hurt you, and this is going to be a rough path. Some of you have been down that path, haven't you, Brother Bob? And uh, you go through some of those things, and it's hard, and it's tough, but it's necessary in order for you to get well. So that's what happens. We let everything shut us down. I'm afraid to say anything. It'll offend them. It'll make them mad. And I'm not saying go out and be unkind. And I'm not saying to be rude. I'm not saying to be mean. I'm just saying that we need to have a voice in the culture we live in and in the society we live in. Because if you don't, who is? If you don't speak up as a church... Who is? The White House? Oh, you're kidding me on that one, aren't you? Who is? Public education? No. Who is? Hollywood? Not at all. I mean, we have to think about all of that. And they're loud and vocal. They march in the streets. They don't give a rip about offending you. They don't give a rip about the fact that what they say or do might be something that you don't approve of or it might hurt you or something. They don't care. And so we've got to get a little bit more bold. I'm not saying copy them. I don't want to do that. I'm just saying let's do what the scripture says. And let's be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And uh, let's learn how to speak up. So that's kind of where we're going 
You can get a little bit of taste of that. And uh, it says, they shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. That sounds like power. That sounds like authority. And if there's anybody who wouldn't want to hear you, it'd be your enemy. And we've got to learn how to talk to our enemies. We've got to learn how to do some listening, too, I'm afraid. But uh, anyway, we'll talk about that as we move on. Not, try not to do too much of it now. So let's look at the first thing. Uh, a society's in decline when you see the attempt or an attempt to succeed as a secular society. Basically, what they're saying is, uh, we don't need God. We don't need the blessing of God. We don't even need faith in God. We don't need to acknowledge God. We don't need to honor God. We're fine the way we are. We can do this. We've got this. And nobody can stop us. We're not afraid of other nations. We're not afraid of what's the rot in our society. We're not afraid that uh, we've got a lot of perversion and garbage that's going on. We're not afraid of what our kids are doing or what they're exposed to. Ah, it'll all work out. After all, we're America. We can do this. And um, there's a part of me that uh, I could kind of join in and go, that's right, man, we, we are. But I'm old enough now, I've seen a few things, and I've watched a few things, and I've watched how this country has changed so much in my very brief and very young lifespan, right? And, uh, you know, some of you, uh, you know what it was like. Um, I was asking Jerry Miller back there, have y'all had a chance to meet him? You ought to. He's, he's a funny guy. But I was asking him about a quote that I had, and I said, did George Washington really say that? And he said, yeah, I was there. And uh, I heard him on that. And so uh, that's, that's the joy of growing older, isn't it, brother? So look at this. The attempt to succeed in a secular society. What does that mean? Unless the Lord builds the house. Is he? Is the Lord building the house? Is the Lord doing the things? Are we dependent upon the Lord? Because if we're not, here's this, the uh, awesome warning. They labor in vain. They labor in vain who build it. And I'm afraid that a lot of us, even in the church, are trying to build our lives on sand and we're trying to make it work. We've got the idea that we don't have to build our house on the rock anymore. We've kind of gotten the idea that that's old-fashioned and that's what old people had to do and that's what previous generations had to do and that's what other people had to do but not us because we're, after all, Americans in the 21st century. We can build a house on the sand. We'll figure it out. We'll just dig deeper. We'll have a different foundation. We'll put different piers in it. We'll figure it out. And in other words, what we're saying is, Lord, it has been nice knowing you. Thanks for your help in the past, but we'll take it from here and everything we do you think about how we uh, teach evolution and we grasp a hold of that and nearly every uh, national park you go to is going to make reference to it we go to museums and nearly every museum you see especially if it's natural history is going to make reference to all of that now they can't prove it and they can't show you any transitional fossils but they know it I mean, they know it. They really know it. And you're the fool. You're like a flat earther if you say that you believe in uh, creation. So uh, we, we think about everywhere we go. No God, no God, no God. Push him away. We don't want him in our schools. We don't want him in our society. No manger scenes. Don't put a manger scene up. That little baby's a threat. That little baby will trigger somebody. 
Think about all of that. After all, it's a holiday for his birthday. Can you even imagine having Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday in January or Martin Luther King Day in January and nobody could mention his name or show a picture of him or show anything like that? You say, well, that would be crazy, wouldn't it? And yet that's what people do at Christmas. We want it to be, I think Christmas is a pretty good picture of what I'm talking about. We want to have the holiday. We want to have the fun. We want to have the love, the peace, the joy, the good warmth feelings we want peace on earth goodwill toward men just can't we do it without Jesus can't we do it our way aren't we smart enough aren't we intelligent enough aren't we uh, the kind of people that we ought to be so that we could actually get this whole thing fixed and so we try and look at the mess that we're in things don't get better they continually get worse because if you try to build the house without the Lord you do it in vain. It's an empty pursuit. The word vain means empty, worthless, useless. It's like a soap bubble. Just pop and it's gone. And that's what indeed happens. They labor in vain that do this. Now, my next question was, well, what's a house? Because, you know, we all know what a house is. You're going to go home after church and you're going to go to your house. But that's not what he's making reference to here. This is not about a physical house. I think it's better understood if we were to uh, think about in England the monarchy they have. Uh, started to say Prince Charles, but he was formerly known as Prince, and now he's king, right? And uh, King Charles, how many? Third? Yeah, King Charles the third. And um, he is the head of what is called the House of anybody know Windsor. The house of Windsor. Now they have a lot of houses. They have a lot of castles. They have a lot of property. They have a lot of livestock. They have a lot of automobiles. They have a lot of treasure. A lot of things like that. So the house there, the house of Windsor, cannot be referring to a building. It's referring to really a family at, at its base. It's a family. The Windsor family. And uh, it's also a dynasty. You want to, if you're a king, you want to have offspring that are going to follow you and sit on your throne. And the longer, the better. The great kings have long generations of a dynasty. And uh, a king in ancient Israel, one of his biggest fears was he would be deposed and he would be conquered and someone else, someone else with a different DNA would sit on his throne. Kind of like lions. If you ever like big cats, I do. And uh, if... A pride of lions over here, they have the dominant male. And then if another pride of lions comes on their territory, there's going to be a fight. And whoever wins kills the other lion's children. They don't want any DNA from the other uh, lion at all. And kings were a lot like that in ancient times. Whenever they would conquer, whenever they would take over the throne, they would kill the other king and kill the other king's family and offspring because they didn't want anyone making a claim to the throne. That's why Herod was so upset when the wise men said, where is he that is, and this, and this word was big, born king of the Jews. So Herod would say, I'm the king of the Jews, but he wasn't born the king of the Jews. He was appointed king of the Jews. And so it terrified him, and he had to get rid of the competition, just like a lion, a male lion would do. That's the way kings acted them. So it could be that Solomon is writing this about his own kingdom and family. Unless the Lord builds the 
house, the house of Solomon, the dynasty of Solomon, then you labor in vain to do it because kings are all going to die. They all leave the planet. They all get deposed one way or another. And uh, your children may or may not be able to uh, carry it on. Solomon had a son. His son's name was Rehoboam. There's your next grandbaby's name, Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was a spoiled, snotty brat. And when Solomon died, Rehoboam takes over the kingdom. And uh, when he starts thinking about what he ought to do, he talks to some of his dad's advisors. That's not a bad idea. And the advisors said, you know, Rehoboam, if you really want to endear yourself to the people, your father had all kinds of building projects. We saw the ruins of some of those when we were in Israel, still around. And uh, he did all kinds of things. And that meant taxes were high. And these men said, if you really want to endear yourself to your citizens, to your kingdom, then cut their taxes. That ought to get an amen from everybody, right? Cut taxes. And uh, Rehoboam said, yeah, I'll think about it. And then he went and talked to some of his peers. What do you think we ought to do? And they were going, oh, don't do that. Because if you do that, that'll make you look weak. Kings don't like to look weak. Presidents don't like to look weak. Nobody likes to look weak. And so uh, he was thinking, really? Yeah, if you do that, you'll look weak. In fact, you ought to increase the taxes so that you can show them that you're the leader, you're the boss. You're taking over for, the, for Solomon, your old man, but you are firmly in control. And so Rehoboam comes out and he goes, you know, you all want me to cut taxes? He goes, here's what we're going to do. We're going to raise the taxes. And if you think my father was bad... He's like, a compar- in comparison to me, my waist as opposed to my little finger. My waist is a little bigger than my little finger, and so was his. What he was saying is, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do it for my glory and for my benefit and to secure my throne, and I don't really care how it affects anybody else. You know what it ended up? Rehoboam was the last one to sit on the throne of a united Judah and Israel. They had a civil war. And the two nations split apart. So Solomon, it didn't work out real well. And and maybe Solomon had his own problems. Maybe he didn't always do what was right. He did have a long period of time where he kind of backslid. And what did he have? uh, 300 wives, 700 concubines, and uh, all of those kind of things. He started worshiping foreign gods because he wanted to keep his wives happy. And uh, he would do his marriages not out of love, but out of political savvy and so if I marry the guy's daughter from this kingdom over here and his daughter comes to my palace and we have children well that king won't attack his grandchildren will he and so how do you think his so-called wives and concubines felt how do you think his family was you think they were a happy unified family with lots of children and all of these things that are going on I doubt it I'm sure there were there was a lot of sadness a lot of rejection a lot of heartache and a lot of competition and things like that that was going on and then when he does leave it behind and he leaves it to Rehoboam to follow after him Rehoboam fumbles the ball Big time. I think this is what Solomon is saying. Now, of course, when he writes this, he doesn't know all of this is going to happen. But remember, he's the wisest man that's ever lived. So he knew this, even though he didn't practice it. You know, that's our big problem. 
We don't always practice everything we know. And we're so wise when we look at other people and we see what they need to do and what they don't need to do and how they need to handle things. We're so smart and we are so wise. But uh, the uh, words of Jesus come to mind, Physician, heal thyself. And so many times we're so busy trying to take care of other people and trying to talk about them and manage them and change them and push them around. We don't take care of our own business. And I think that's what we find with Solomon. He wrote this, so obviously he knew it, but he didn't do a very good job as he did it. Now, as I uh, think about what this means, uh, we don't want to labor in vain. And then I think about how blessed our nation has been over these uh, uh, centuries. Okay? And I think about uh, this whole idea of building a house or building a city or watching over a city or any of these things that Solomon says in here where he says, without the Lord, it's vain, it's empty, it's useless. And I think about the land that I love and the land where I live. And I see so many worthless, useless, vain pursuits. People having heart attacks over things that they're going to leave behind. People that are stressed out and have high anxiety over things that really, in the long run, they don't matter. And yet they ignore their soul. You know anybody like that? You ever heard any stories about anybody like that? And we hear some of these stories about these big industrialists. I remember reading one time about uh, uh, the original Rockefeller, the Standard Oil guy that was the richest man in the world, and yet his stomach was so messed up he could only eat uh, saltine crackers at one point. That's pretty sad, isn't it? That's pretty sad. And I think about people who give their lives to empty, worthless pursuits. I think about people who give their lives to sports. So, uh, sports in our nation is an idol. There's no doubt about it. It's an idol. And there are so many things we'll do for the sake of sport. We'll pack a stadium in the rain or in the cold or in the heat. It doesn't really matter. But, you know, going to church. Oh, it's just too rough out there. I saw a raindrop hit the window and whew, just can't do it. And uh, as I've told you before, it's going to be embarrassing when we get to heaven and everybody's sharing their story. Uh, what did you do for the Lord? And here's Stephen. He goes, I was stoned for him and I gave my life for him. Oh, wow, isn't that great? Isaiah says, I was sawn in half for the sake of the Lord. Oh, that's great. William Tyndall, the guy who translated the Bible into English, will say, I was burned at the stake for our Lord. And then they look at a Baptist and say, what did you do? And he goes, I went to church in the rain once. And all heaven grows silent because they're in awe of this one man and what he did for the Lord. You, you know what I mean? It, it's just kind of sad when we think about these things. And uh, we, we pour our lives into these things. We pay a lot of money for these things. We, people make a lot of money on these things. And yet they end up with broken homes, kids without daddies. They end up, some of them, bankrupt. Sometimes they end up so crippled. I, I, Earl Campbell was always kind of somebody that I admired when he played for the Houston Oilers. And uh, I saw him not too long ago when he was in a wheelchair. And he could barely get out of the chair. Not worth it, folks. It's just not worth it. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And the living things and the lasting things, I think about how God has blessed our nation 
And I thought about uh, why, why would he bless our nation for so long? I know we're kind of crumbling and falling apart now, but how did we get to this point for so long in this society? Can I read you some things from our founders? This is from George Washington. In case you don't know, he's our first president. In 1789, he made a Thanksgiving proclamation, the very first one. They didn't make it a holiday back then. It was just from time to time they would do this. And here's what he says. Whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to implore His protection and favor and whereas both houses of congress that's almost a joke now isn't it both houses of congress have by their joint committee requested me to recommend to the people of the united states a day of public thanksgiving and prayer to be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of almighty god especially by affording them an opportunity peacefully to establish a form of government for their safety and happiness. How long would it take today to have that before the Supreme Court? How long before the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals or the Ninth Circuit would be saying, that's unconstitutional, that violates the Establishment Clause? You know what I think about that? If anybody knew what the Establishment Clause meant, it was these people like George Washington, they wrote it for crying out loud. And yet today we're petrified by all of that. Separation of church and state, all of those kind of things. Another quote, not from George Washington. Principally, and first of all, I resign my soul to the almighty being who gave it, and my body I commit to the dust, listen to this, relying on the merits of Jesus Christ for the pardon of of my sins. Samuel Adams. Isn't that something? He articulated the gospel better than a lot of Baptists can. Here's another one. We have no government uh, armed with power uh, capable of contending with human passions unbridled by, immorality, or by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is completely or wholly inadequate for the government of any other. President John Adams. First vice president of the U.S., second president of the United States. Can you imagine? Look how far we've fallen. Here's another one. The Bible is the best of all books, for it is the word of God and teaches us the way to be happy in this world and in the next. Continue, therefore, to read it and to regulate your life by its precepts. Okay, this will blow your mind. That was written by a man named John Jay. So what? He was the first uh, chief justice of the Supreme Court. Have we fallen? Man, we've tumbled. It's amazing. In regards to this great book, the Bible, I have uh, but to say it is the best gift God has given to man. All the good the Savior gave to the world was communicated through this book. For it, for it we could not 
I read that wrong. But for it, sorry, we could not know right from wrong all things most desirable for man's welfare here and hereafter are found portrayed in it. Any guess? President Abraham Lincoln. Isn't that amazing? God will spare nations slated for judgment as we see in Jonah chapter 3 verse 10. It says, When God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Uh, do we still believe God can forgive sins? Do we still believe that God can restore nations? Have you given up hope? Have you quit voting? Have you quit praying? Have you ever had a time where you got so burdened about our society and our nation and the corruption and the filth and the immorality and the perversion that you actually took a day and maybe didn't eat and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven? You see, our founders believed in stuff like that. And our early Baptist forefathers believed in stuff like that. But for us, eh, not so much. We'll say a quick prayer and then go eat somewhere and forget about the whole thing. And yet Jonah much more, much more evil than anything you've ever seen. People say about America, this is the worst it's ever been. You've never been to Nineveh. Nineveh was much worse, much more bloody and bloodthirsty than America could ever even come close to. And yet God forgave them. God forgave them. Ticked off Jonah, didn't it? But God forgave them. We forget about that. Let me give you some other scriptures to chew on before we leave tonight. Psalm uh, 33, verse 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen for his own inheritance. Well, no wonder we're not seeing the blessings of God, right? God is not our Lord anymore. And the Lord is not our God anymore. And we want to do things our own way and we want a secular society where we can do whatever we please. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to not just the Jews, but it says any people. We're not going to escape that, folks. We're not going to escape that kind of stuff. Psalm 66, verse 7 says, He rules by his might forever. His eyes keep watch on the nations. Hey, if you're a person who thinks that God's got other things to do and he's not really paying attention to things that are going on, no, his eyes are on the nations. And he says, let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. And that's exactly what is happening in our land today. The rebellious are exalting themselves. What they would have been ashamed of in past generations, now they are flaunting they're flaunting it. They're rubbing your face in it and daring you to do anything about it. So what do we do? We need to get on our knees. We need to pray. We need to speak up. We need to be salt. We need to be light. We need to be involved. Daniel chapter 2 verse 21 says, And he changes the times and the seasons. Boy, I pray he would do that. We're in a desperate time right now. And he removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those 
who have understanding. Boy, could we ever use a good dose of that. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, said, Where we have a tent, God must have an altar. And what he is saying is we worship God not just at the temple, not just at the tabernacle, not just at the church house. It's got to be everywhere we go and we've got to be serious about our service and our worship of the Lord. Now, when Solomon talks about building the house, building up the family, a team of uh, New York State sociologists once attempted to calculate the lasting influence of a father's life upon his children and on those who followed in subsequent generations. And in this study, two men were researched who lived at the same time in the 18th century. The lasting legacies that each man left upon his descendants stand as different as night and day. Okay? The first guy they looked at was a man named Max Jukes. Anybody related to Max Jukes? Anybody ever heard of Max Jukes? Well, he was a reprobate. He wanted nothing to do with God, morality, or anything like that. He was very, very selfish. And uh, he frequented prostitutes. He was drunk. And uh, he raised his family. And listen to this. This is from that study. Among the 1,200 known descendants of Max Jukes, 440 lives of outright debauchery, 310 paupers and vagrants, 190 prostitutes, 130 convicted criminals, 100 alcoholics, 60 habitual thieves, 55 victims of impurity, and 7 murderers. That's the legacy of Max Jukes, who said he could do it his way, and he could do it on his own. Probably had Frank Sinatra's version of his way playing on his phonograph back then. The next guy is somebody I'm sure you have heard of. Have you ever heard of a preacher named Jonathan Edwards? One of the founders of the Great Awakening. John Edwards' family. You know what it looked like? You ready for this? 300 clergymen and missionaries or theological professors. 120 college professors. 110 lawyers. Over 60 physicians. Over 60 authors of good books. 30 judges. 14 presidents of universities. Numerous giants in American industry, three United States congressmen, and one vice president of the United States. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. That has implications for us, for our families, for our descendants, even those that are not born yet. You need to pray for them. It also has relevance for our nation and for what we are living in and the society in which we live and I think you can see it's pretty clear which direction generations have gone not just this upcoming generation no our generation and the generations even before us this is not new this has been going on 
for a long time. And the seeds of it may have been small and they may have been almost imperceptible, but they've been around for a hundred years or more. Something has drastically changed and something must drastically change in our nation or this republic will not survive. And the blessing that we had for so many years the independence we've had for so many years and the prosperity, it goes back to our founders who acknowledged God in almost everything that they did. But we're far beyond that. We're way better than that. And we are just so, so capable. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In individuals' lives, in family lives, in a society, and even in a nation. May God shed His grace on us. Father, as we think about this, it grieves us. We don't like the way that our nation is going, our culture is going. We don't like even the things that we may see in our own life. Forgive us when we try to handle it on our own and we think we don't need you. Please forgive us. This nation has forgotten God, abandoned God. This nation has turned against God, actually. And we come here tonight humbling ourselves before you, saying, Oh God, forgive us. Oh God, rescue us. Oh God, deliver us. Oh God, save us and our children and our grandchildren, and those yet to be born, please revive us, revive our church, revive other churches and other believers, and may we be the salt and the light that we are supposed to be. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.